I mean, we have to enjoy working with the client because otherwise it's just torture for us, right? <laughs> But also, it depends what the client has in the pipeline. If it's a medium-sized company who has lots of marketing plans in the pipeline and will need landing pages, then that's definitely something I would go for. Hello and welcome to episode 29 of Webflail, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the greatest failures behind the greatest webflows, because success often comes after learning from many failures. I'm your host, Jack Redley, a failure connoisseur, and today my guest is Alessia Sanazaro. In 2016, Alessia co-founded Code and Wonder, an agency that helps companies move quickly by using cutting-edge, no-code tools to design and build websites and applications. The agency now comprises of nine people and is doing great. In November last year, Alessia created Flow Tools, a collection of 56-plus resources created by the Webflow community all in one place. She's also keen on mentorship, having been involved in various startup programs, such as Startup Sprint, the Big Idea Challenge, Hack for Good, and Creative Spark in London. We talked about all sorts of things from being ambitious to the point of being destructive and burning out. We talked about not handling the hiring process well when the agency first started growing. We talked about sending proposals that were overly designed and unnecessarily flamboyant. And we talked about retainers too. This is a great episode for anyone that's thinking of starting an agency or is perhaps having started an agency and is slightly struggling i hope this episode really helps so embrace and learn from failure in episode 29 of webflow with alessia sanazaro alessia welcome to the webflow podcast Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. I always see you on Twitter saying, I'm listening to Webflail, I'm on, I'm going to the gym, I'm listening to Webflail. Yeah, I find it, I don't know, when I go to the gym, I actually prefer listening to podcasts because it just takes my mind off of it. And uh, yeah, Webflail is definitely my go-to at the moment. It's interesting to hear that this kind of Webflow therapy that I'm trying to do is is motivating you as you pump iron in the gym. I'm glad that. <laughs> case I would never have thought that would happen when I started this podcast but that's that's awesome to hear so you are clearly a very ambitious person and um, you've kind of burst onto the webflow scene with flow tools and other things can you tell us a little bit about how you came across webflow and how code and wonder started sure so we started the agency in 2016 like you said And at the beginning, we were more of a traditional, well, I call it traditional, I don't know if it changed now, uh, agency in the terms that we did full stack development. So in React and mainly JavaScript frameworks and design. So we had no idea about no code or no code tools or any anything like that. And yeah, we gathered quite a few clients and we were doing quite well until the pandemic hit. And all of a sudden, all of our contracts kind of stopped or got paused and no one knew what was happening. And uh, all of a sudden, I found myself having lots of time. And I don't know how I didn't freak out at first, <laughs> but instead of uh, just freaking out, I was like, right, I have all of this time that I never had before. Let's learn something new. And 
I come more from a project management background. Uh, I'm not a designer. I'm not a developer. I know the basics. So I know what a design system is. I know what it should look like. I know a bit of HTML and CSS. I tried JavaScript, but I couldn't quite get into it. So I know like a little bit of everything, but I would never call myself a designer or a developer. So then actually my co-founder, Liam, he was like, oh, why don't you try Webflow? You know, I've heard, I've seen it on Twitter and people talking about it. It looks quite easy to use. Just give it a try. So yeah, one day I just signed up and I got hooked. And since then, we actually not completely pivoted the agency, but now the majority of our work is actually Webflow. And we still do full stack and React applications and all of that. But actually, I'd say pretty much 80% of our work is on Webflow now. And it sounds like from having no clients, you suddenly got a deluge of clients after saying publicly, hey, we do Webflow. Did you like clients? Have you known this tool? Is that how it worked? Actually, it coincided with uh, when Webflow opened their experts program, because before it was like closed loop, and then they opened it up for a short period of time. And that's exactly when I got my certificates, which were still, you know, that crappy bit of Word document looking um, certificate. And we got listed on the experts uh, page for Webflow. So that's really what drove all of the traffic and all of our new clients. And because in the previous months we were super quiet and actually we were lucky enough to have built some of our like financial safety net for the company, I felt like I had to gain that back. And, you know, we couldn't afford to outsource or hire anyone to help out so I just put my head down and worked throughout any contract that came through and I was afraid to say no and I think yeah I just worked myself to the ground which is kind of a bit of a dark time (laughs) for me and that's I guess one of the learnings is learning to say no and when to stop and feeling like you know myself and my well-being is actually more important than work or the agency or anything else. Mm. And I think this seems to be quite a common problem in the creative industry where people struggle to say no Um, even if they they know they need to say no, but they're like, yeah, I can probably get it done. What is your advice to someone that's um, that needs to say no more for their own sake? I think it's a tricky one because um, on one side, it's really hard to say no, and but it's also hard to tell someone not to say no depending on their situation. Like it feels like talking to or like listening to the podcast and everyone else, they all seem to have gone through this kind of like busy period and working themselves uh, to the ground. And I wonder if it's needed at the very beginning just to get that buffer of, okay, I've got all of these clients, 
I've got my experience. I've got my safety net. Now I can stop. And I know I'm kind of contradicting myself and saying you should not do that. And I do not recommend it. Uh, but the fact that everyone goes through this, I don't know, made me think a little. But going back to your question of what would I recommend, like to say no, is basically thinking, taking a step back and kind of check in with yourself and feel like, how do I feel now? Can I push myself a little bit more or will this just make me cry? Like <laughs> it was, um, there was a one point where I would receive an email and I would just start crying. And I'm like, it's just an email. It's like, if I receive one now, I'm actually happy, you know, but it's just checking in and see how that makes you feel. And just thinking, oh, if I have to work next weekend, how would that make me feel? Because it depends on where you are in your state of mind. Some weekends I'm like, yay, I'm going to do like all these I don't know, community projects or mentor or do things and it actually makes me feel better. But if you're not in the right frame of mind, it might make you feel worse. So I think it all depends where you are um, and then make the decision based on that. It reminds me of I went to a physio because I broke my collarbone and they said you need to work your shoulder a little bit. But when it really hurts, you've got to stop. But you actually need to work your shoulder a little bit for the bone to recover, apparently. Just so that there's some kind of movement with the, the muscles in that area. And I think it's quite similar to freelancing or, or maybe agency running, where it's good to be under a little bit of pressure. And so that you're growing, you know, you, you're expanding, you're, you're working hard, but not so hard that you're just going to burn out and crash but there's that little bit of a kind of get up and go-ness that I think is quite healthy but over a sustained period I think when it's too much it's I mean your body tells you what it needs and it's important not to cross that line because then once you cross that line it takes you so much longer to recover mm. and I guess it's it's the same as the physio I mean my physio told me the same thing just stop before the ouch and yeah, uh, that's the yeah, that's what to do yeah just push yourself a little bit but don't go past the ouch because then it takes you a very long time to recover let's get into the failures then tell me about failure number one not handling the hiring process well yes so when we first started code and wonder we had really no idea what we were doing <laughs> and especially hiring i never hired anyone before that and none of my co-founder like hired anyone before that so we kind of just went with it and I think we, we made like a few failures in that area but you learn from them so they're all good and the first one was you know they tell you to hire someone who will fit well within the team and kind of glue and you know they don't just need to have the technical skills they also have to work well together we went more with a work well together than the technical skills <laughs> so we were looking for a developer and end up hiring a designer 
And it sounds so dumb now, but in, at the time, we're like, oh, we met this great guy and, you know, he fits really well. Uh, and we were so excited of like growing the team. So we're like, yeah, let's do it. And it's a failure on my side um, for not pointing that out at the time. And I actually feel really bad because, you know, you end up wasting everyone's time as well so because it didn't work out because we didn't have enough work for uh, them and yeah so making sure that you know it doesn't just fit within the team but also they have the skills to for the work that you're having and that you're producing so that's one the other one is hiring for future projects So we partner up with a really big agency and, you know, everyone was saying, oh, this project is going to come through. And obviously being the new kid on the block, I was really look up to this big agency and following their lead. And they said, oh, yeah, you absolutely need an account manager because it's such a big project and you need someone, you know, managing the client as well as someone managing the project. So we hired an account manager. That project never came through. And yeah, we we kept him because again, like he he really glued with the with the team and he had a great personality. But after a few months, he was like, I don't have anything to do. <laughs> like you don't have enough clients for for you to need an account manager. And so I guess the learning there is get the project first and then hire the people. I mean, it, it's always tricky because it depends by the project. If they want it straight away, it's sometimes very hard to find the right people so quickly. But have a few people lined up and maybe start the conversation with them. But make sure yeah, that you that the client signs on the dotted line before making that hire. So that's another one that we've learned throughout the, these years. I think for anyone listening, they might say, well, Alessia, these seem quite obvious. But what you're saying is, well, actually, there's a kind of chicken and egg thing where to get the big client, you need to kind of have your systems in place so that when they do come on board, you're ready. Is that is that fair? Yeah, especially for bigger clients. Uh, so we lost quite a few projects due to the team size and saying, oh, you know, everything was great and your proposal was great and everything was good, but we don't feel like you have a big enough team to take on this project. So I think, yeah, they sound so obvious now. And I'm like, you know, facepalm <laughs> on how did I even make that mistake? But when you're in the moment and especially because this is was like in the first two years of starting Code and Wonder. Mm. You're kind of in the in the middle of all these emotions of being like, oh my God, we have a new client. Uh, it's a big one. Let's do whatever they ask us to do. Uh, and then realizing, no, like the client is not always right. And let's take a step back and see what we need. And if we're not big enough or if they feel like we're too young as an agency, then, you know, maybe it's not the right fit after all. 
just to kind of circle back to something you said there as well about hiring someone with great personality fit, but not necessarily the technical skills to do the required job. Do you think that there's an overemphasis on like personality fits generally in the hiring process for agencies? Or if looking back, do you think, okay, the first thing we need is for them to have the technical skills, then we look at any personality, you know, traits to to work out whether they'd be a good culture fit? I think it's still very important. I still feel like they still need to fit in. And actually, one thing that I really struggle with is finding the like assessing the potential because I would rather have someone who's a really good fit in terms of personality and a great potential maybe they don't know everything right now but in a month's time you know they can pick it up um but yeah those we we do skill tests now for all of our hires um so we have either uh, full stack like react tests or webflow um small like tests before they get hired just to assess their capabilities. So that's something that we definitely put in place after that. And even for designers, we have like a quick mock-up. Obviously, we don't want to take too much of their time, but, you know, something that they can do within half a day. And do you think that the personality traits are as important for remote agencies? Because, for example, at a a friend of mine, he works for an agency that's based in the States. He hardly sees any of his colleagues, but he, he does talk to them on message. So I guess, you know, there is a personality aspect to that. But I, I guess I'm intrigued what your thoughts are as to kind of personality and culture fit into an agency if it's a remote agency and how that plays out. It's an interesting question. And uh, as I was talking, I was actually thinking about that because we went we were always a bit like remote first, although most of our team is based in London. So we see each other now and then. But yeah, the whole uh, agency is remote. So I feel like personality actually plays nearly a bigger role with remote. Because if you see someone every day in the office, you kind of build up that rapport and that friendship in a way but if you never talk to someone or just talk to someone on slack or in your stand-up then you know something needs to click even more for them working well together I find and this is just my perspective and my opinion Um, it might work differently with other group of people but it feels like you need to kind of find ways of getting together even more virtually than you know if you're in the office with someone every day you need to kind of be more creative as a as a agency owner maybe as well to try and galvanize a group to to work well together I guess as well tell me about failure number two then um putting too much effort into making beautiful proposals So this kind of ties in with the big client um, that we had a chance. Yeah, it was one of the biggest projects we would have ever had. And we put everything in that proposal. It was just beautiful. It had mock-ups. It had just very, very visual, very tailored. And I think the client 
was initially going out to tender because with such a big budget, that's kind of what they had to do. They already had an uh, an agency in mind. And, you know, even in the first call with them, they said, this is the agency we really like. But we still went for it. And the process became so long, I think, because they might not have expected someone else to kind of match that level of quality. But we're talking like we were maybe four years old, this agency, which I admire greatly, and they do amazing work. You know, they're way older uh, than us. They have a huge team. So it was like great to be kind of competing with them and then being told by the client, you know, you're the top two, where we've told everyone else, we're not going to work with them. You're the top two that we're going to decide between. And I'm actually really grateful for this client who at the end made a pro and co pro and cons table for us and the other agency and kind of showed us where we were strong at and where we kind of failed. And the reason we didn't make it was mainly the size of the team and uh, the um, like the projects that we worked on previously. We didn't just we didn't have enough experience to take them on. Now we had this amazing proposal just laying there and we thought, great, let's use that as a template for all the other proposals that come along. And we did that, but because it was so visual, we spent a lot of time in sourcing the images and creating mock-ups and examples and so forth, which you know, it didn't quite fit with the smaller projects that we had. The time that it took us to then customize these proposals, it just took too long. And we lost some clients with that. They just moved on, you know. And alongside, I was just sending emails uh, to like the smaller projects and being like, oh, you know, uh, thank you for the call. This is how much we think it will cost for your new landing page. And those emails actually converted more than the big fancy proposals. And I don't know whether it's, you know, just the size of the project that people are looking for snappier answers and just the bottom line, how much is this going to cost me? Um, But we now completely stopped those big fancy proposals and we have a way simpler Notion template with everything in there is still highly customized because, you know, it every project is different. They need different things. So all the requirements are different. So the proposal is tailored to that, but it's not as visual anymore. I find that is a good balance between having something highly customized for the project and not spending too much time. So, yeah, that's now how we do all of our proposals. Wow. Okay. Lots there. Firstly, I'm intrigued why you went for such a big client. Like you said, you're quite a young agency. You haven't necessarily worked with clients that big. How did you even know? This might sound like a silly question, but I'm always intrigued why people want such big clients when they can actually service smaller clients very well and probably a lot quicker. So So we never go for tenders unless we're invited to. 
because uh, I find tenders are a bit a tricky one. Uh, companies are obliged to go for them because of various policies. And most of the time, they already have an agency in mind. So this is just a formality of getting more quotes and kind of waste people's time. And uh, they already know what they want. But if you invite it to them, then there's a level of, oh, you know, I might want to be working with you, but we're not too sure yet. So we only reply to tenders that we're invited to. And that was one of them. And we just, we were so excited. The project was great. It was uh, a whole UX uh, project, which really intrigues me. And I think the whole team was like just super excited by the brief. So we decided to go for it. Okay. And then in terms of the proposals that you that you now send out, I mean, why do you think the Notion templates are so much better? I mean, why do you think this short, snappier emails um, convert better generally? Because if you've put so much effort into that proposal, surely that is going to wow the client and be like, yes, I want to work with you. But what you're saying is that's not the case. I mean, it wasn't the case for us. Uh, I see a lot of designers creating really good looking proposal templates and, you know, selling them or giving them out for free. And it might work for them. It just didn't work for us. Doesn't necessarily mean they don't work. But it's just interesting that now you use just Notion templates and and that's like your standard um, way of of sending proposals. Yeah, I mean, we can turn that around in, you know, the next day they can have a proposal. And I feel that has more of an impact than the mock-ups and pre-pictures and all of those. Yeah, I think Rand Segal's talked about this on, on Flux, but he says within 24 hours of having the the client call, send a proposal because that personal... Um, you know, connection that you've had on that call, you know, if, if that person likes you, they're going to want to work with you. And frankly, the, you know, the proposal is just let's, let's cross the line with this thing. Um, and the longer that gap, the more it looks that you're not actually that keen to work with that person is how he described it, which I think is a really interesting perspective. So within 24 hours, I think is, is really good advice. I totally agree with that. Tell me about failure number three, retainers. Yes, I guess it wasn't so much of a failure, but more of a learning. Uh, So especially with Webflow, where you don't really need a support package. Uh, There's no security updates, uh, nothing like that. So how do I retain a client? How do I make that client come to us over and over again, hopefully. And we found out that actually offering retainers, so this is not like a support package, it's not a maintenance, it's more additional work. So what we do is uh, we tell them, you know, you can stay on kind of an ad hoc and whenever you need anything, you contact us. Uh, But actually it might work a lot better if we have an ongoing relationship where we help you with any changes, any additional designs or training for your team. Basically, they can use the hours however they want. 
And that has converted quite well. And the, they vary in hours. Uh, so we go as small as eight hours a month, which is just, you know, a day that we dedicate to that client. Uh, we have some which are like 60 hours a month and they have a lot of work uh, that they want to do, uh, redesigning pages, adding new pages, adding functionality, calculators, all of that stuff. So it it was kind of a learning in terms of, oh, you know, we're not just limited to one-off redesign. And once that's done, the client is off, never going to see them again mm. uh, kind of thing to maintaining that relationship and trying to you know, add value every step of the way. And so in terms of how your agency works right now, is is quite a lot of agency time spent on retainers? Because there's an interesting mix between trying to get new work and then doing the work and then maintaining that relationship with, with retainer work and, and kind of how much of your time is spent doing, you know, all those different bits. I'd say... 40% of the time, um, and that is as a team, like the whole agency uh, is spent on retainers and then the other 60% is on new work. However, I love to be 50-50 at some point because it's, it's just so nice working with clients that we worked for for years and they know exactly how we work and we know exactly what they need. It just becomes this nice routine in a way, uh, although I say routine, but every ask is never the same. So it's not a boring routine. Um, but I think it, it really also helps as an agency to then grow. Because once you know that, oh, you know, there's X amount of work coming in for the next six months, you can also plan for those other projects and bigger projects and other clients as well. So if I'm if I'm listening to this correctly, what you're doing is you're getting new clients in, you're doing the work. And if you enjoy working with them, you say, hey, did you know that we actually offer, um, you know, retainer packages that start at eight hours a month? So, you know, just the one off needs uh, that you can stack up for that one day a month, which we do. Or, you know, we have kind of two days a week or whatever. Um, you know the the higher end packages are and but that's dependent on whether you enjoy working with them whether you offer those retainers or how does that kind of relationship actually come about I mean we have to enjoy working with the client because otherwise it's just torture for us right (laughs) planning um, six months of something that you don't necessarily enjoy Uh, So that's definitely a factor, but also it depends what the client has in the pipeline. Uh, So, for example, if it's a very small startup just starting out, I probably wouldn't recommend it. But if it's a medium sized company who has lots of marketing plans in the pipeline and will need landing pages and might need like additional work, then Mm. that's definitely something I would go for. One thing I'd like to mention, because I see that all the time, is those unlimited packages mm. of, oh, sign up and you get unlimited work. I've thought about it. I don't see how that would work for us because I would kind of feel like a 
fraud because you can't work unlimited hours on one project and offer that to all the clients. Like surely you'll have to split your time up um, throughout different clients. So we went with, I guess, a more hourly based uh, contract with, okay, you define how many hours per month you might need, and then the price will vary according to that. So if you want, you know, just eight hours, that's going to be a lot cheaper than those unlimited packages. But if you want a lot of time, then, you know, the price will vary depending on that. And I'm digging into this just because I'm personally really intrigued in retainers, but I'm sure listeners would also wonder, do you offer anything in those eight hours I, or, or do you have, okay, we're going to specifically, we offer design work for this amount and then development, you know, design and development retainer package is this amount. And then do you see what I'm, I'm asking like on page SEO or we're going to do ads as well. Like where, where's the line stop for what you offer as digital partners? We actually don't put a line down. We just say wherever we can help, we can use those hours for anything. And yeah, it really varies. Uh, We use hours for just design or just development or training or workshops to come up with new ideas for their marketing strategy so yeah it doesn't really have any specifics we just left it open to wherever we can help and how do you time those you know say I'm a client I want 20 hours a month and I ask for all right I want 10 landing pages I want a marketing plan I want advice about paid ad and you know like what how do how do you from the get-go set expectations that hey just to let you know I think this is going to be above the budget and you know what does that mean so when we first have the conversation with retainers I give them a few examples you know if you get 20 hours we might be able to do a design and development of a simple landing page if Mm. you get Eight hours, it will just be able to do small tweaks, um, maybe one design, but not the development. So I preempt like all the pricing with examples of what scope of work might be. And then once we sign them up um, as a team, we all use ClickUp as our project management tool. And I invite the client to use that as well. So they'll create tickets And then for each ticket, I'll write a estimate. So the client kind of roughly knows, oh, okay, a landing page is a lot more work than tweaking this drop-down menu. Uh, Mm. And then we'll schedule everything uh, depending on also their priority and go from there. Coming on from that, um, you talked a little bit about uh, delegating work. Um, to make sure that you know everyone in ClickUp knows what their role is and and stuff, can we just dig into a little bit about um, delegating? Because it sounds like you've learned lots over the years um, about how to delegate and when to when to back off and when to step in. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It took me a long time to delegate. That's probably what yeah I missed 
at the beginning when I was just like focusing on the work and kind of like not looking around me and just being like, okay, this is what I have to do, work weekends, whatever, that's it. Actually, when we got the first Webflow hire, that really saved me uh, because now I had someone to delegate to, uh, but at the same time, I might be a little of a control freak. So I want to like check everything, make sure that everything is up to standard. So I found it really hard to give it away and not check. And then I realized, you know, people like developers were doing the work and the client was happy and that's all that mattered. Like I don't have to check every single thing to make sure that it's, the way I wanted it, um, as long as it, you know, it's up to standard, good quality, the client is happy, then that's fine. Uh, so that letting go, I found it really hard at first, but it's absolutely necessary because, you know, you can't take it all on by yourself. And what advice would you give to a young agency owner who is making their first hires and there's this weird tension between you know, they were doing the work, but now they've hired someone to do the work, but they can't quite let go of the work to the person that they've hired to do the work. You know, what advice would you give to someone that's in that position? I think the trick is to have a really good onboarding. And actually the first, I'd say few months really work together and spend a lot of time. I think at the beginning, what I found it a little bit maybe frustrating is oh, it's going to take me five minutes, but actually I'm going to sit down with someone and show them everything and it's going to take an hour instead. But actually, that is crucial. That's very important. And yeah, maybe that's something. Another thing that I kind of failed in the past is not spending enough time with employees when they first joined the team. And yeah, making sure that you spend the time to show them everything, teach them what you know but also reason like why you do certain things the way you do them because at first it might not be logical but then once they learn about the bigger picture it makes sense so really spending time sitting down next to each other or just sharing your screen on on video just makes a whole lot of difference so we have covered three failures. Well, we've covered all sorts of different things, but um, three main failures there. But now let's ask a harder question. What is your next failure going to be? So I listened to your podcast, so I prepared for this. <laughs> and it actually really ties in with the last one in terms of me wanting to check everything. So everyone in the team is autonomous. I just check things before they go to the client and because I'm checking kind of everything I'm becoming a bit of a bottleneck uh, for the projects so I feel like yeah that has to change and there needs to be some kind of process where you know someone checks and maybe everyone checks each other's work maybe that's one way that we're going to try it out but yeah just kind of like removing myself from the quality checking process and making sure that everyone just knows what they're doing. 
I think the issue is when I spend too much time in one of these areas and not enough in others. So making sure that, you know, I have enough time, especially for new clients, new leads, and hopefully be more part of the community and, you know, offer new tools and new tutorials and things like that. Thanks so much for listening to episode 29 of Webflow with Alessia Sanazaro. And thanks to Alessia for coming on the show. This episode, I think, really highlights the importance of having systems and processes in place when you're building an agency. It sounds like Alessia and a lot of the other guests that I've had on this show, when they have problems growing their agency, it's because they haven't documented their processes and systems. And then as a result, the person that comes on board as a new employee is kind of learning through trial by fire. And so is the agency owner. The other thing that we talked about that I want to highlight in this conclusion is the retainers. The retainers are the bread and butter of Code and Wonder right now, and she wants that to be even more so going on into the future. Hopefully some food for thought there in the coming weeks and months for you guys. Next week, I'll be interviewing Nancy Peng, the Canadian designer who works for the Slam Media Lab and Adaptable Agency. She is a Webflow machine. I'm very excited for that episode too. 